So, I mean, basically, I'm just going to just recap, really, from where we were, um, you know, last time. Uh, because kind of in this part of Acts, we're kind of coming to a little bit of a change of scene. It's a bit like, you know, when you're in the theatre and the curtain comes down on one scene um, and all the kind of scenery's moved in the background, and then when it comes up again, you're kind of in a slightly different scene. So basically, just going back to verse 31... Uh, you know, it talks about it being quite a time of peace and prosperity for the churches there. We know that Saul, um, who had been persecuting the churches, has now become Paul. So he has uh, been converted. And we've just been reading in the last uh, few verses, really, um, about his conversion, the dramatic uh, road to Damascus experience that he had and uh, and his development. Um, um, so it's a time of relative peace, partly for the fact that Saul is no longer persecuting the Christians. So Saul is um, kind of being neutralised because, um, you know, obviously he's now Paul and he's um, he's kind of a force for good. Um, also, whilst Paul was in Jerusalem, um, there were some um, Hellenists there, so some Greek Jews who had wanted to kill Paul. Um, but Paul has now kind of been safely conveyed away from there. So he's in Caesarea at the moment, in a place of kind of relative safety. So the churches really are in this time of, of relative peace. And then what happens, as I say, the kind of curtain comes down, we stop looking at Paul so much, and we move on to Peter. Um, and we see what's going on with Peter's ministry. Um, we remember that Peter obviously... Um, you know, was the apostle to the Jews primarily. That's what God had um, commanded him to do, whereas, um, you know, Paul uh, for the Gentiles. Um, so we basically f- flick on to Peter's ministry. And uh, we're just going to take it together. Just follow with me. Um, you know, normally when I do a sermon, I like, I was saying to John this morning, I normally like to have like a three-point sermon and kind of fit everything into them. But maybe the Holy Spirit's trying to teach me something. You know, you can't always kind of, you know kind of squash God's word into like three points. So let's just go through the passage and let's just see what the Lord kind of teaches us as we go through it, really. So we look at verse 32 and it says, Now it came to pass, as Peter went through all parts of the country, that he also came down to the saints who dwelt at Lydda. So the first thing we see, and kind of my first point really, interesting to bear in mind, is that up until this point, the centre for ministry had been very much Jerusalem. That had been the place where people went to be healed. That's where the church was based. It's where it was birthed. That was where everything kind of happened spiritually in Jerusalem. It says in Acts 5 and verse 16, um, also a multitude gathered from the surrounding cities to Jerusalem, bringing sick people and those who were tormented by unclean spirits, and they were healed. So up to this point, pretty much, I mean, not exclusively, there were believers in other places, but up to this point, the, the centre for ministry was in Jerusalem. But, it, but here what starts to happen in verse 32 is that Peter starts to become mobile. He starts to leave Jerusalem. He starts to go to the surrounding areas. He goes to all parts of the country. And I think that's interesting. I think that we learn something from that. Because so often in the church today, I'm not saying this is wrong, it's just an observation. But what did Jesus say? What was his commission in Matthew 28, the end of Matthew 28? He said, didn't he? He said, go into all the world and make disciples of every nation. And what do we expect people to do? Come to church. 
Now, I'm not saying that's wrong. It's good for people to come to church and come under the sound of the gospel. But, I mean, these verses would suggest that Peter, and what was Peter doing here? He was really, um, he was following the example of Jesus, wasn't he? I mean, what was Jesus, in a sense? He was an itinerant preacher. He went throughout the towns and the villages of the time, preaching to people, and really meeting people at their point of need. That's what, Peter, that's what Jesus did. That's what the Lord did. And that's really what Peter is doing here. He's starting to be a mobile missionary. You know, m- the ministry is no longer based in a place. It's now itinerant. Peter is going around. And he's starting to move in the power of the Spirit. So as we follow Jesus' example, and as we go to minister to people where they are, we find that the Lord then puts people in our path. And that's what happens in verse 33 when he meets Aeneas, who needs healing. So that's really my first point, really. This idea of being being mobile, of being people who go out. We remember, don't you, you remember the, um, the parable of the lost sheep? And it says, you know, if the shepherd, you know, if one of the sheep goes astray, he leaves the other sheep and he goes out to find the one that's lost. That tells us something about the character of God. God is a God who pursues us. He's a God who pursues us. He goes after the one who is lost, and he often leaves the other ones. And so often as a church, I'm not saying our church, I'm saying as the church in the West, we, we're not so pursuing of people. We don't go and meet people like Jesus did where they were. We just expect people to come to us. I mean, before the service, I mean, Will was quite right. He said, you know, what are we doing? We've got this service here. And, you know, he was just going to get some milk for me. Um, and not for me, for us. And uh, he went down to, um, to the betting shop where there were some guys there who were, who were betting and placing bets. And he said, you know, really, we should, these are the kind of people that, that Jesus came for. These are the kind of people we need to be reaching, you know. And so we just went down there and, and Will had a chat with a couple of guys there and just said, you know, we've got a service tonight. Do you want to come along? And I think that that's something, you know, that the Lord wants us to do. He wants us to be outgoing um, and, uh, and, and to meet people really where they are. So just going through the text, um, you know, it says that he also came down to the saints who dwelt at Lydda. Now, I'm hoping that this technology is going to work. Technology is not one of my giftings. Okay, let's see. Oh, hang on. Done that one. Ah. So, I'm just going to talk briefly. It says, um, you know, it, it says there, down to the saints, the saints who dwelt at Lydda. Just as a by the way, what is a saint? What is a saint? So, the Roman Catholic Church would really say that a saint is someone who is especially noble, has attained a particular degree of spirituality, um, they're then canonized by the Roman Catholic Church, and then after they die, they can become kind of a mediator that people can pray to, um, to kind of reach God. That is, that's the predominant view of the Roman Catholic Church. But what does the Bible say? What does the Bible say is a saint? Who is a saint in the Bible? What do you think? Well, the clearest verse I could find on this was a verse in 1 Corinthians 1 and verse 2, and it says, To the church of God, which is at Corinth, to those who are sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints with all who in every place call on the name of Jesus Christ our Lord. So if you're in Christ, if you're a believer in him and you trust in him, 
then you are a saint because you are positionally sanctified in Jesus Christ. That is the teaching of the Bible. That is the teaching of the scripture. Um, It isn't that there are other saints. I mean, it is good to have examples, isn't it, in our Christian lives and people to look up to who have been godly, but we don't kind of, we don't revere them um, in the same way that the Roman Catholic Church would do. So that's the point. So the saints keep going through, um, He down to the saints who dwelt at Lydda. Now, where was Lydda? Lydda was basically, um, it was a town um, in between Joppa. Now, Joppa was um, on the coast, and Jerusalem, obviously, was the centre, and Lydda was somewhere in the middle. And Lydda was quite an influential place. It was a centre of commerce at the time. It was a place um, that kind of really gave people like travel accessories, so things like leather for their journeys and strappings, things like that. So it was really a place of quite a crossroads. It was quite an influential place. That's important to remember because it was an influential place that if God did a work there, the gospel could spread strategically in that area. So the Lord sovereignly used this place, Lydda. Okay, so that's what Lydda is. So just follow with me. It says, then he found a certain man named Aeneas, who had been bedridden eight years and was paralyzed. So we find something here about Aeneas. He was a man who had probably lost all hope. He'd just been confined to a bed for eight years and he was paralyzed. He couldn't do anything in and of himself. He was just completely trapped, basically, in this paralysed state. Now, just reflecting on this, we see something interesting about the person Peter chooses. Who were the kinds of people that Jesus chose in his ministry? He often chose the people that everybody else had given up hope on. Do you remember that there was the lady with the issue of blood? And it said that she'd spent everything that she had on physicians. She'd been to GPs for years and they'd done absolutely nothing for her. Do you remember that? She'd been to GPs for years and years and they'd be doing what they usually do, give out pills and stuff, none of them worked. There's probably no specialist you could refer them to in those days. And she just kind of grew worse and worse and just kept on bleeding, basically. And she was desperate, wasn't she? She was desperate for a touch from Jesus. But that's the same with the person Peter chooses here. He teaches someone who is desperate. You know, there's lots of people who are desperate um, in our society. There are a lot of people who have lost all hope. There's a lot of people who are in bondage to drugs and addiction. A lot of people who, in their minds, are just in a place where they feel they can never get any light. There are a lot of people who feel that they're too ugly and too sinful um, to be touched by the Lord. Family camp was, was great, and I was speaking to someone there, I mean, I won't say who, and they were saying, you know, before they became a believer, um, they just walked into a church, and they just felt, felt so dirty when they came into the church. They just felt so kind of, um, you know, so, so, so filthy, you know, to come into a holy place like a church. But, you know, I love that song that says, you know, the vilest offender who truly believes that moment from Jesus a pardon receives. And that was really the state that Aeneas was in. He was in a desperate state. And I think we can see an illustration here 
in, with Aeneas. Um, you know, we can see an illustration, really, about the whole Christian life. The Bible says that while we were without strength, in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. It says in Ephesians, And you he made alive, who were dead in trespasses and sins, having no hope and without God in the world. No hope, dead, <laughs> you know, just paralysed, paralysed by fears, by addictions, and above all by sin, paralysed by sin, unable to do anything to please God. We call that total depravity. Um, I'm not a Calvinist, um, but I do agree with total depravity to an extent, because it really is the truth of the fact that as human beings, we are dead in our sins, and we are unable to please God. In fact, we're unable even to make a decision to choose Christ. The Holy Spirit has to come and draw us, okay? And then, when we're brought to that place, we then have to make a choice to either accept or respond that. But that initial drawing is the work of God. It's the work of the Holy Spirit. So what I'm trying to say then, really, is Aeneas is a picture of the unsaved man. He's a picture of the unsaved man. Um, you know, uh, basically hopeless and bedridden and paralysed. So what happens then? Well, uh, Peter then says to him, Aeneas, Jesus the Christ heals you. Jesus the Christ heals you. So what happens there is, you know, um, Peter, you know, he points to Jesus, not to himself. He doesn't say, I can heal you. I've got the gift of healing. He says, Jesus Christ heals you. And notice what he says there. He says, Jesus Christ heals you. He doesn't say, Jesus Christ will heal you, or Jesus Christ may heal you. He says, Jesus Christ heals you. And that is because Peter has got absolute faith in the object of his faith. Jesus is totally trustworthy. Jesus is totally trustworthy. And Peter's got such faith that he says, Jesus Christ heals you. And then what happens? He says, arise and make your bed. Get up, Aeneas, make your bed. Um, and that really speaks to us of the fact that, you know, although it is God's work, in a sense, from start to finish, although God is the one who reaches down and rescues us, it does require a response on our part. We have to step out in faith. Even in salvation, we have to make a response. We have to make a response to that. It talks in Hebrews 3 and verse 8. It says, Today, if you hear his voice, don't harden your hearts as in the rebellion. In Philippians, it talks as well about the active part that we play in salvation as well. It says, Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. It's God who works in you, both to will and to do for his good pleasure. So, although it is God who initiates faith and enables us to come to this place, we still have to step out in faith. And people have to do that as they're saved. They have to step out in faith. And then he arose immediately. And what does it say? Then all um, who dwelt in Lydia and Sharon saw him and turned to the Lord. So it had a huge impact, basically, on that place. We mentioned before, didn't we, that it was a strategic location and where it was. So the gospel went out from far and wide. They saw this mighty sign and wonder. 
So that's really the story of Aeneas. That's what we see in Aeneas. And we see a great picture of the gospel story of salvation. We see a great picture of the heart of Jesus. Jesus, the one who reaches out to the desperate and the needy. And the, one that, the ones that people have written off and the ones that no one else um, thinks can be reached. And really we move on after that um, to the story of Dorcas. Now, Dorcas... Um, it's the Greek version of a word Tabitha, and basically it's translated and it means a deer, a graceful and a beautiful creature. In Proverbs 5 and verse 19 it says, Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice with the wife of your youth as a loving deer and a gentle doe. So that's really what Dorcas's name suggests. It's a creature of great beauty and grace. I don't know whether any of you, maybe some of you girls like ponies, I don't know. Do you like ponies when you're growing up? I don't know. I'm just being very, I'm just, I'm just being very sex. I like ponies. You like ponies, okay. I was being very stereotyped there, but, you know, often girls like ponies and, and you see horses and they're such graceful creatures, aren't they? With their beautiful manes and these, these stallions and, or ponies. They're just, they're just really graceful, aren't they? But Dorcas was someone really who her life displayed grace. Her life was dripping and overflowing with the grace of the Lord Jesus. Um, I'm trying to think of that scripture. I think it's in Titus. And it talks about kind of adorning the gospel of God, making the gospel beautiful. And that's really what Dorcas did. We know a few things about Dorcas. In verse 36, it says there was a certain disciple. So we know that Dorcas was a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. So she was a disciple. Um, we know that she was full of good works and charitable deeds, which she did. So really, she was a woman who was businesslike in her virtue. She was businesslike in her virtue. She made it her job to be diligent in, in good works. Actually, we're all called as believers to do that. Sometimes we don't think we are, do we? But we are called to do that. Um, it says in Titus 3 and verse 8, um, I want you to affirm these things. Those who have believed in God should be careful to maintain good works. There's a diligence there. And that's what Dorcas did. And you know, talk is cheap, isn't it? I mean, I don't know how many of you have been around in churches, probably for many, many years. And we say a lot of really high-sounding things in church, don't we? We say, oh, you know, we're full of this agape love, you know, this sacrificial love. We love everyone, you know, we do anything for everyone. You know, and then kind of, when it comes down to it, you know, we don't even really want to talk to people, do we? We don't want to, you know, even kind of, you know, invite them around to our houses and spend kind of five minutes with them. We can't kind of stand them most of the time. And that's really, there's a huge disconnect there, isn't there? There's a huge disconnect um, often between, we have to be very honest about that, I think, because I think it's only as we recognise the disconnect that we're able to grow as the Lord wants us into what he wants us to be. But we have to recognise there's a disconnect between what we say with our mouths and what we act. Talk is very, very cheap. But, you know, Dorcas wasn't like that. Um, Dorcas was, she didn't just talk the talk, but she walked the walk. She constantly devoted herself to ministry. That was the whole focus of her life. Just as Jesus, you remember, he became a servant to all, didn't he? That was what Jesus did. That was his whole ministry. He became a servant to all. And that's what Dorcas did in her life. She became a servant to all. And her life was just overflowing with the grace of God, with the Holy Spirit. Um, you know, it talks, doesn't it, in the Bible about those rivers of living water coming out that kind of... They kind of heal and they, and, and they minister to people. And that's what Dorcas was like. She was this woman who did these practical things, ministering to the needs of the saints. But 
Look what happens. In, in verse 37, it says, It happened in those days that she became sick and she died. She became sick and she died. What does that tell us? Well, should I tell you one thing it tells us? It tells us that your best life is not now. It tells us that God has not promised you health and wealth in this life if you obey him. That's a lie. That's not what our our hope is as Christians. Because Dorcas, you couldn't find a more godly woman than Dorcas. But what happened to her? She was sick and she died. So, I'm sorry, but if you hear people, Joel Olstein or others, telling you otherwise, then that is not the Christian hope. The Christian hope is, it says in 2 Timothy 1 and verse 18, our hope is in the fact that we may find mercy from the Lord in that day. That we may find mercy from the Lord in that day when we see him. That's the gospel. That's our hope. It isn't, God does want to bless us. Of course he does. God loves to give us good gifts. But that's not our main hope. And we can follow God and we can be faithful to God. But we may still end up sick. We may get cancer. We may lose everything we have. Don't want to depress you. <laughs> but that's just the truth. That's the truth. Because the thing is, if people believe something else, if they believe that they're going to be supernaturally cosseted in a giant... Holy Spirit kind of cotton wool bud or something, then you're going to be really disappointed because God never promises that. So I just want to be, just be clear about that. <laughs> God doesn't promise that. But you know, my hope is in the fact that I will find mercy from Jesus Christ. I will find mercy from him in that day because of his sacrifice. I won't go to hell. I'm going to enjoy his presence forever. That's what my hope is in. That's what Dorcas's hope was in. So she became sick and she died. So, what did they do? Well, as the custom of the time was, they washed her with warm water. That's what they did at the time. So they often washed people with warm water. And there was this kind of a superstitious belief that washing people with warm water would help to revive their spirit. It would bring the spirit back. But it was in vain. It didn't work, clearly. She was still dead. So what did they do in verse 38? Well, they sent, they heard that Peter was, uh, was around about, you know, kind of, uh, you know, healing Aeneas, healing paralyzed people and stuff like that. And so they, they kind of thought, uh-huh, you know, maybe, uh, maybe he can help in this situation. And so they sent a couple of guys out to try and get Peter on the scene. So notice that there was no other hope again, no other hope, no help in the medical profession, you know, no good. Could send a GP there. What are they going to do? Prescribe some amoxicillin. Give some paracetamol. Refer them on. Well, it's not going to do Dorcas any good, is it? She's already dead. Um, so, so it's only, it's only the hope um, is only in God through Peter. I mean, obviously they saw the hope as being in Peter. It wasn't really in Peter, was it? It was in Peter as a messenger of the living God. He was the only one who could bring hope in that situation. So they called for Peter. And Peter came. And uh, when he came, they brought him to the upper room. And the widows stood by him, weeping, showing the tunics and the garments which Dorcas had made while she was with them. What a testimony that is. What testimony that was. At the end of Dorcas's life, there were all these grateful widows who were holding up all these things that she'd lovingly made for them. 
These were people who had probably really grown fond of Dorcas. There was a genuine love and affection there. Do you know what? You know, they could have said any any kind of eulogies there, any fancy words, any poetry, but nothing was more of a testimony to Dorcas's life than those clothes that she had, which she lovingly made for all those years. Powerful tribute to a virtuous woman. It says in Proverbs and verse 30, uh, chapter 31 and verses 31 to 2, it says, charm is deceptive and beauty is passing. But a woman who fears the Lord, she shall be praised. Give her of the fruit of her hands and let her own works praise her in the gates. That's the kind of, of woman, you know, or the kind of person generally, in more general terms, um, you know, who is, who is truly pleasing to the Lord and has truly done something worthwhile and meaningful with their life. You know, remember Jim Elliot, the guy who was killed by the um, cannibals? He had this saying, he said, only one life twill soon be passed, only what's done for Christ will last. You know, we often don't evaluate our lives, do we? We just go about living our lives. But you know, the reality is that life is a vapour and life is very, very short. And we have to think, what will I have at the end of my life? What will I have to present to the Lord? You know, it talks, doesn't it, in, um, I think it's 1 Corinthians. And it says, you know, if any man builds on this foundation, wood and hay and stubble, you know, and it just gives this impression, you know, that everything in your life can be burned up and can be totally worthless. You can get to the end of your life and it can all be worthless. But just ask yourself this question. I'm not trying to depress you again. (laughs) Ask yourself this question. What gold do I have to give to Jesus? What gold do I have? What's going to remain at the end of my life? What's going to remain when everything's come and gone? And, you know, when you're looking back on your life and you're 70 or 80, what have you got that's of real worth or real value there? And Dorcas had these garments. She had the signs of love, of sacrificial love and service, which she devoted her life to. And, And that pleased the Lord. That blessed the Lord. That pleased his heart. You know, what do we have? What are we going to have? at the end of our lives. Well, well, let's look in verse 40. We can learn something from that as well. Let's just move on, look at verse 40. It says, Peter put them all out, he knelt down, and he prayed. Peter put them all out. Does that sound like Benny Hinn to you? Can you imagine Benny... I'm, I'm sorry, I'm being, very, I'm being very kind of... I shouldn't name Nick. Well, there I am. But, but can you imagine Benny Hinn doing that? Can you imagine Benny Hinn saying... Go out, everyone. I just want some peace. I just need to pray. You just need to pray. I just want to do this. No. No. Because it's theatre. These guys are showmen. They're showmen. That's what they do. It's just like going to the theatre. It's just like going to a rock concert. It's all a show. They wear white jackets. Everything is timed. It's melodrama. It's psychology. It's mass hysteria. It's theatre. It is theatre. That's what it is. But notice what Peter does. He gives a godly example of healing someone. He puts out everyone out of the room and he just says, look, I just just want to pray. I just want to seek the Lord. I just want to see what the Lord wants to do in this situation. Do you remember when Jesus healed Lazarus? Do you remember when Jesus healed Lazarus? 
And he commanded, didn't he? The Lord Jesus commanded. He said, Lazarus, come forth. And that's really because Lazarus was speaking... uh, uh, Sorry, Jesus, Lazarus. Jesus was speaking with the authority of the Son. He was the Son of God. And he spoke with authority. He could command. But you know, in this situation, Peter doesn't do that. He just kneels down. He just says, Lord, what do you want to do in this situation? Holy Spirit, I'm just open to you. What do you want to do in this situation? And obviously the Lord said to him, you know, you know, heal, heal her, you know, um, just, just, just say, Tabitha, arise. You know, the, the authority that, that Jesus, that we have, our relationship to authority, it's really an authority that we defer to. We, we defer to the authority of the Lord. You know, we just say, God, what do you want to do in this situation? We don't command the authority of Jesus. We don't do that. We certainly don't start commanding angels here, there and everywhere. You know, God does want to use us as instruments, but, um, you know, we defer to the Lord's authority. We kneel, we kneel in submission like Peter did. Lord, what do you want to do here? And then she opens her eyes and, uh, and uh, you know, and then she sees Peter and she stood up. And, uh, you know, he calls the saints and widows and he presents her alive. And it's a great testimony. It's a great testimony. Many people in that area believe on the Lord. Many people believe in that area on the Lord. You know, that's the purpose of signs and wonders. I'm just going to very briefly point to a couple of, um, couple of, uh, couple of scriptures, really. Uh, or a scripture, in fact. Um, where are we? Oh, I'm going back. Oh, my goodness. Oh, how do I do this? Oh, my word. What's this? Oh, hang on. No. Uh, oh, hang on. No, that's right. Wrong. Hang on. Uh, uh-huh. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so, um, you know, when, when the disciple, you know, when the, when the believers are praying in Acts, you know, they actually pray and they ask God to start to move. They say, God, move. Move by your spirit. Do signs and wonders. Work among us. Glorify your name. And he says, now, Lord, look on their threats and grant to your servants that with all boldness they may speak your word by stretching out your hand to heal and that signs and wonders may be done through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And he says there that they may speak your word. That's the purpose of the signs and wonders. The purpose of the signs and wonders is to attest to Jesus Christ, to attest to who he is. It isn't. As some people think, just to have kind of a circus show. Let's all just have a Holy Spirit circus and, you know, roll around and see what can be done. That's not really the purpose of signs and wonders. The purpose of signs and wonders is to point to Jesus Christ. Um, so that's, I mean, we want to see signs and wonders. You know, it's a difficult one. We know that an even adulterous generation <laughs> seeks after signs as well. That's true, isn't it? But signs and wonders are useful insofar as they point people to Jesus. That's really what I want to say about that. And obviously it did in that place, and there was a great move of the Spirit, and uh, many people believed in that region. Um, Joppa was on a seaport, so they may have even gone from that place and brought the gospel, the good news of Jesus, to other places. Um, And many believed on the Lord. So I'm just going to kind of kind of finish um, and just talk very briefly about, I don't know how long I've been speaking for actually, I don't know, um, but anyway, <laughs> um, I just want to talk very briefly about um, verse 43, and it says there that Peter stayed many days in Joppa with Simon, a tanner. So we, we've looked at Aeneas, we've looked at Aeneas and, and the picture that that gives us of the gospel, um, 
We've looked at Dorcas, we've looked at her as an example of a godly woman, and we've thought about how our faith in Jesus should lead us to a life of good works, so we've looked at those two things. And finally, really, I'm just kind of setting it up for whoever's, I don't know whoever's talking next week, but just kind of in this, just talking about this verse, just kind of uh, setting it up for that. Because in verse 43, it says that Peter stayed um, with Simon a tanner. Now, a tanner, I didn't know this, but a tanner basically is someone who deals with leather um, and leather hides. And for an observant Jew at the time, it would have basically been sacrilege um, to have anything to do with a tanner because they dealt with kind of dead animals and pigs and things and all that kind of stuff that was really ceremonially unclean. And in fact, they had to live 75 feet out of any village. That's what, that's what tanners, tanners did. But you know, God had obviously started working in Peter's heart by this stage. He'd obviously started laying the groundwork in Peter's heart in these verses to have him stay with a tanner. Because as you'll know, he goes on, um, you know, in, in the next verses, you know, we know about Cornelius, don't we, and that, that sheet that comes down, um, and about how God clearly says that the Gentiles as well are included in God's plan of salvation. So we see here in verse 43 that God is really preparing um, Peter for that. He's starting to do a work in his heart. 